the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Law in Sport. Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, if you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, as well as hear from some of the people who work tirelessly in the background to keep sports running, whether they are the private practice lawyers, the general counsels, as we'll have for today, the in-house lawyers, the executives, and of course, occasionally we get a few athletes on. So to welcome a really close personal friend and one of the people that I respect the most in the sports arena is Nor Wayne, who is the general counsel and head of business affairs at USA Track and Field. Norm, how are you doing? Good, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate that, and I appreciated the uh, running pun that you made in the intro there. That was really good, too. So thank you. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. So, uh, Norm, first of all, how have you been? You spoke at the conference uh, in September, and you were talking about all of the, you know, dealing with the um, difficult issues around COVID and the qualification for, for the Olympic Games. How has it been in that interim period since November, I think it was? Yeah, it's been, um, it continues to be a challenging experience. I mean, I think, as I'm sure you have covered with lots of prior speakers and articles, I mean, we're all trying to adjust to this COVID environment on the fly. Um, the information is continually changing. And it's really just about the approach, trying to... to to line up as much information and analytics as you can to make informed decisions and to be prepared for whatever contingencies um, need to be applied at the time. So it's not an exact science, but you know, it uh, we're all working our way through it. And I love that. That was a, that was a legal and a political answer. <laughs> um, so just for the benefit of, people that aren't who haven't maybe attended it would be outrageous if they haven't but if you're listening to this and you haven't attended one of our conferences or you haven't heard norm speak before can you just set out um the structure of usa track and field and how it works in america just very briefly so people can get a context of that sure um it now usa track and field is the national governing body for the sport of track field long distance running and race walking in the united states um, it encompasses everything from the millions of weekend warrior runners that participate in the sport almost at the bottom of the pyramid all the way up to the top of the pyramid, which are the elite athletes that compete for world championships and Olympic medals. And so um, our mission is you know, to, to help ensure competitive excellence and then to promote popular engagement within the sport. So ways to grow the sport, both from a participation perspective and a monetization perspective, like how, how do we continue to generate more and more resources to better support our athletes so that they are as best positioned as they can to go chase down those medals. Jojo, as you were saying that, um, I was thinking, great, I'm, I'm now, uh, maybe I'm classified as a weekend warrior. I like the sound of that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, you are. <laughs> um, and just so people know, because relevant for, um, uh, you know, given that we may be in an Olympic year, hopefully we are in an Olympic year. Um, hopefully we are, yeah. 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 Um, so how it works 
you described this before, but you have the colleges, the NCAA competition, uh, as, uh, who run various competitions, and then you have a qualification um, for the USA team, correct? In, in one sort of, it's like, it's one and done, right? Yeah, college is separate. I mean, they, they go out and they are broken down by conferences and they all compete for for championships within the conference level and then they'll have national championships as well at the collegiate level. But um, for us, it's usually a trials that happens about a month before um, the competition, whether it be an Olympic, uh, that's usually a trials year, or if it's a world championships, it'll be at our national championships. And then um, the athletes that, that finish first are the ones that go represent the United States of America in the international competition, you know, corresponding to that. So, um, it's really important. And, and again, kind of tying back in, in a COVID year, you know, when, when the, the emphasis is on that competition, you want to make sure that the athletes are rare to go and healthy and protected from everything that's happening so that they can be right mentally, physically, emotionally to go out and compete at their best. Because the American model is quite interesting. I remember um, it was over at the last Olympics or, or two Olympics ago where uh, one of your star athletes didn't, for whatever reason, just didn't compete well. I think it was in the uh, female athlete in the 100 meters or 200 meters think it was didn't compete very well and but they came to the games and they were really supportive of their competitor who and uh, but but uh patriot who um who was competing because they said look you know what it was that's what it is that's the way our, our system works you know you either do well on the day or you don't and they were i was surprised actually how grace uh, maybe it's a credit to the athlete i can't uh, you you norm you must know who that the um uh, it was a really high profile female sprinter uh, it's not coming to to mind right off the top of my head. We'll, we'll, we'll try and backfill it, and I should know better. I should have done my research before asking, <laughs> before making such a statement. But um, okay, so that's um, so that's really interesting. Yeah, but I will say this. I mean, like one of the one of the most compelling things about our our Olympic trials um, is usually it's the race not for first but for third because third place represents. Uh, fulfillment of your dream and a ticket to the games and fourth place represents you missed it this time and it's going to be another four years before you get your chance to do that again and that I mean that is like the encapsulation of everything that goes into um, the training and the preparation for that moment it's 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 literally the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat can be separated by one one hundredth of a second. You know yeah, what I no, mean? Absolutely. And and so, and then the the thing that I've learned over the years, and maybe we should talk about this. Um, so first of all, we met years and years ago um, at tackling doping in sport at Twickenham Stadium that was run by correct run by yeah. what was then the World Sports Law Report, and we were there, I think as media partners or something like that. And, and we were having a great time. And then we, we, we just basically started <laughs> talking about the, I think collegiate sport, I think was the, was that? Yeah. We talked about like the entire sports landscape. <laughs> I think it, uh, we hit everything from like boxing to football, to American football, to collegiate sports. And really you talk about a random encounter. I mean, if you recall, 
I got there late. I was coming with um, uh, Gary Johankton, who was um, with the United States Olympic Committee, and we we didn't get in on the initial trip over to the restaurant, and uh, we showed up about 45 minutes late or whatever. We got to this long table. There were two seats on opposite ends of the table. He sat on one end. I sat on the other and they sat me next to you who like we just started this conversation on everything sports. And I like to say, I mean, we're what, like 10 plus years later and still having the same conversations. So <laughs> it's great. Hopefully, hopefully more informed conversations. <laughs> they, were, they were then. Um, I think it was, um, to be fair, we should probably give a, uh, you know, a mention, an honorable mention. I think it was Squire Patton. Bogs, we were organizing. I think it was when Mike Morgan was there before he set up on his own. I think that's correct. Yep. So uh, thank you for that. Um, yeah, so we became uh, friends. And then a simultaneous time, then um, Ollie Rumsey, who was just on our, our motorsports law conference, uh, had mentioned to me about the importance of uh, having in house counsel to tell you about basically what the reality of the what's going on in the sports world as opposed to listening sometimes a bit too much they say to private practice who may be slightly limited in what they can and can't say and or maybe just taking one side of the argument not both and and then so from that conversation and from other conversations with people like Angus Bukowski at the RFU and others we law and sport we set up this advisory board and Norm now you're now chairing that uh, advisory board in which yeah I don't know how I drew that straw (laughs) but somehow (laughs) It is, and it really is great because I say this to you all the time, and and it's it's actually really true. I mean, you've done a great job of surrounding yourself with a lot of like really brilliant minds, and so the opportunity for me, it's like I feel like I don't know how I landed in that lot, but I'll take it, you know. And the opportunity to to interact and understand the way they think and the way that they are attacking problems. Um, both within the industry and as we look to continue to move the needle with law and sport. But just to get their varying perspectives and backgrounds and approaches to problems, to me, has been invaluable because I feel like the best learning you do is from listening to people who have been there, done that, have been successful and have a better roadmap. And if if their roadmap is better than yours, then you might as well just, you know, you know, borrow off of that page, if you will, and and try to enhance your efficiency. And one of the, I should add on that and give a shout out to the advisory board and the editorial board that both boards are not uh, paid. They're all voluntary, both of them are voluntary roles. So people give up their time, which always astonishes me how generous everyone is to give up their time and perspective. And really it's just a case of they give us, give us feedback on what we could do better in terms of what could we do better to serve the market and to solve, help uh, solve problems. And so thank you, Norm, uh, for your support over the years with that. And thanks for t- continuing and you say <laughs> for, for, for working with me to get organized on that. But now cut that out. Um, the, the reason why you're on the advice board and the reason why I got you involved was because your background was, was one that was interesting because, um, you've been at the, you know, you're, whilst you're too humble to say, in my opinion, and it is my opinion, uh, for what it's worth though, but you've been one of the, I would say quiet thought leaders of the space. Cause you, you're someone who doesn't crave, but they I had to coerce you onto the podcast. <laughs> Basically, I don't like, I think it's taken like six years. Um, but you're not someone who craves profile, right? You're focusing on you. I know you, you know, 
from our private conversations, but also in terms of your work, you, know, you like to get you like to do a great job and uh, and, and and bring people together. But sometimes uh, you don't necessarily. Um, seek the praise that maybe some others would ensure that they get. Um, do you also want to give a brief overview in terms of, you know, um, your journey into sport and in particular, you know, the, the, your perspective from going from, you know, dealing with some media rights, dealing into a governing body and then working with other corporate counsel or, you know, the ACC and with other general counsels, not only in sport, but across um, the in-house um, area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, for me, I've always been somebody who's been very like just results oriented and results driven. And so if we accomplish the result, then the organization succeeds. It's like, you know, you know, it's job well done. You move on to the next task. Um, to your point, like I haven't been one to say like, Hey, and did you see what else I did? And did you see what else I did? You know, like that's just not, uh, for example, not- when was your last LinkedIn post? <laughs> just to give me into context so you don't put anything out right yes you, i don't no, i don't no, no, you're not, right and that's that's by the way that's not a criticism that's something i respect so much about you is that you are that focused yeah i mean i correct and so like for me like my journey again i mean my parents um immigrated to the united states um they didn't speak you know, the language at first and they, kind of, where did I come from? Sorry. No, um, Argentina, you know, a little South American country. You guys got into that little spat about over some islands. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so correct. So they emigrated, um, from there and, you know, they didn't know anybody. They were blue collar, you know, hardworking, um, and they ingrained in us, very early about the value of education and working hard. And, you know, um, so those were things that we had growing up. And then um, it worked for me. I went to the University of California at Berkeley um, and majored in psychology and business um, because psychology was about people and business was business, right? Which is what I wanted to be involved in um, professionally. And so um, from there, went on to law school. And I decided like really early in law school that I wasn't sure that the true role of a practicing attorney um, litigating and arguing all the time was where I wanted to, to earn my living. And, and then you really end important. up in sport. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? But this is about, it's about relationships, as you know, Sean, and it's about, it's about collaborating and trying to find these win-win or win-win-win relationships where everybody benefits and that's where we all win. And that's, that's a much, much better success and, and entertaining endeavor than beating each other up over a zero sum game, you know, who's going to get 51% of the pie or whatever, which, which is important. I'm not, you know, downplaying that, but, um, it's, and it's a nature that comes with the job. And so from there, you know, I decided early in my law school career that, that I did want to, sports was my passion and I did want to pursue that. And so I started taking odd, you know, odd jobs and, and volunteering. I, I volunteered for what was professional soccer in the United States before MLS. It was a team called the LA Salsa. Um, I knocked on the general manager's door and I said, listen, I mean, I just graduated from the university and, and I'm willing to work here for free. 
and he gave me the opportunity and I learned everything from filling the 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 jugs for the referees at halftime to um, the press box to putting out marketing surveys to figuring out game times to how is the game being broadcast you know like all of these types of things ticket sales and it was great to learn everything grassroots bottoms up and then he enabled me to to get into MLS before they even played a game and so I was in with the MLS early and learn and again like for me it was all about learning like how learning their business structure. I wrote a paper in law school about MLS and the identity of the single entity because of its unique antitrust structure. Um, and I looked at the the model so, sorry, that this, they had. Just, 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 I'm sure the majority of people will be familiar with it, but just for those people who aren't familiar with it, you know, and it's hot topic at the moment, you know, all these years on is still the, that is now the, the big topic of sport at the moment is that you have a, this single entity structure that Norm refers to where the, the league is the owners of the, of the teams, essentially they, they're under. Correct. The, Correct. And that's the, that's, is and, and this is where private equity like that, um, others like it for us and, and understandably so for certainty, um, uh, you know, and having control, it makes, it makes a lot of sense when you're trying to plan a business. Um, but anyway, not right. so back to what you're saying. Yeah. But my point was like, you know, I kind of like worked my way through there and, um, and I didn't know anybody, but it was just, you know, sheer determination, hard work, um, showing up early, uh, being the, one of the last ones to, to leave the building, saying yes to pretty much any assignment that gets thrown your way. I mean, like, but, it seems like these are become like dinosaur, old school, you know. Um, but how do you post about that on social media? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Where's the TikTok for that? Like, how do you... Like, right. Correct. Well, my kids will probably be doing that. So, <laughs> but it's interesting, right? Like in the sense of like that, you know. So from from there, then you went into. So you were doing this. This was this sort of essentially volunteer role. Yeah, I ended up. I worked for a little while for a Hollywood talent agency, um, and it was very strange because it wasn't that entertainment was per se what I was really looking to pursue, but the opportunity to um, have a position like that and work in the business affairs um, department of an, uh, of a talent agency and learning about the, the film and television business um, in the States was, was too unique of an opportunity for me to pass up. Um, that's at that point I met my wife. I moved out to the Midwest um, I worked for a publicly traded company, a billion dollar publicly traded company in their legal department. And then kind of tying back into what you were asking for. I mean, again, at that point, I was trying to learn all areas of the law. That was really like my breeding ground for for learning to become like a good lawyer, so to speak. Um, I don't know if I've ever reached that <laughs> point yet, but <laughs> but I definitely had the time there to to do that, and I got involved with the Association for Corporate Counsel, which which is a global um, in-house counsel network, um, and had the opportunity and and climbed the ranks within their small law department committee um, and chaired that committee. Um, and then I, I was honored. I got like a, a member of the year award for my efforts. The, the local chapter that I presided over got recognized as well. I mean, I, I, and what was it? What was it? So, so with that though, what were you, what was, what, what was the, 
you know, what what does that mean in terms of you know saying that you you know we recognise that you did something? What was the something that you did? Well, it usually was tied to um, some of the accomplishments, whether it be membership increase or types of events or um, like for the association, we ended up doing a, a, a gala event, which a lot of associations do, but we did a unique one. We got like a game show, a TV game show host to come in and we did, uh, uh, it was is the guy who did newlywed game, Bob right. Eubanks. Right. Yeah, I right? That. So we got, we got Bob Eubanks to come in and we, what we did was we paired the, um, the general counsel for major corporations locally with the, the private practice lawyer, right. like as a, as a, as a newlywed couple. And then he would separate him and we played the newlywed game just like it, but with them with a little bit of a legal tone and it was funny and everybody had a brilliant time and, we raised a little bit of money and everything was great, you know? So, um, that was a really unique and, and fun evening. And so I got recognized for that. And then later I was on their national board of directors. Um, they decided that they wanted to start a sports and entertainment committee. Um, and so they asked if I would do that because at that point I had transitioned from, from the publicly traded company to USA track and field and I was involved in sport. And so, um, the opportunity to do that was was great. And from that platform, I mean, it started out as like 10 or 15 of my friends where I was like, please get on these calls. We got to get some traction. And we started penetrating NFL clubs and NBA clubs and Major League Baseball and Major League Soccer and the Olympic sports. And and it grew to like over a thousand. So um as we kept going layer by layer within the, the sports community. And so um, the ACC does a great job with resources and things like that for uh, practicing professionals, which I think is great. And uh, the committee, so, you know, does stuff. And again, um, with COVID, the, their annual conference um, got postponed and stuff like that or canceled because of that. But, you know, I mean, it, it's a good group to work with. And then I was fortunate to, uh, to be selected for the board for the sports lawyers association within the United States, which I know you're familiar with because you guys partner with, and I think that's great. Um, so, um, yeah, I've been like very fortunate. And even within the SLA, I co-chair their outreach committee, again, trying to put together, um, events, for members to engage with the organization and have learning opportunities, networking opportunities, things like that. And how would you say the, um, particularly the American landscape or, uh, has changed in terms of the role of in-house lawyers? How have you seen it evolve and what do you think sort of going forward is going to be, you know, the, the sort of required or increased skill set? Well, it's definitely grown. I mean, it started with, you know, how many teams have a general counsel to now how many have two or three or what their structure of their legal department has gone, has grown to. I mean, there's lots of different roles that are coming in. There's different elements of it. I mean, it's, as we've discussed before, it's very challenging because it depends on the nature of the relationship with the owner and the team president and the way that they envision those roles and the responsibilities that get attached to it. And so um, there are some team presidents and owners that want their general counsel very involved on the front end of the business, which really is, is 
my preferred method because then you understand you can start to navigate through some of the issues and figure out um, ways to work through problems before they become full-fledged problems, um, which is, I think, better for the business in general than um, they go halfway on a project and then realize that there are these legal obstacles that are going to need to be overcome. And at that point, it becomes a little bit more challenging to work through those issues. So, and that's that's so that's that's a really interesting dynamic, right? So, a lot of people who are interested in sports law, hope, well, I hope you're on the wrong podcast if you're not. <laughs> 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 but but um, if you're interested in sports law. Um, one of the things I think that can be really difficult for people to understand is when they see all the press around various legal issues is not necessarily understanding the, you know, and I'm meant to have an article that hopefully will be published by the time we put this out, but he's understand that dynamic that even certain teams don't, you know, just look at the Liga, look at America or the NFL, even, even certain teams don't have lawyers uh, as in in-house lawyers. They might have people who are um, either former lawyers who are now involved in the ownership in some capacity or the owners, but you know, there's a real divergence. And so trying to get people to take, um, or agree on a, the best, a better, say, I guess a best approach in terms of how a in-house team should focus in, in sports law, um, in the broadest sense in for, for all the major league sports. And then across into Olympic is there's a real divergence of approach. Um, and it's hard, right. Given the strength of like, I guess with, uh, other businesses there's a strength of the leadership and the, and the personalities of the owners can make a huge difference in terms of, um, or in the Olympic sports, the, 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 the makeup of the board can have a huge influence over what the legal role looks like. Yeah. It's not unique to sports at all. I mean, I think it's, it's across business and to your point, you're right. I mean, it's, it's what kind of voice does that seat have and how much are they willing to listen to it? And, and that in, in, in a sense really makes up the role. I mean, um, for me, it's always been about trying to be in, in a position where you do have a seat at the table and you are able to be involved in the business discussions and understand the strategic goals of the organization and the direction that they're trying to go and how how can you contribute. I mean, you oversee one unit, maybe other units that, that report into legal and you know how does your legal goals and objectives or whatever other business units that you oversee, how do they plug in to the overarching organizational, you know, smart goals I like to to work under. But you know, um and so with that how do they fit within those, yeah. And so with that, are you looking at um sort of when you're going through uh, various yeah you know, stages of analysis, are you looking at like, you know, how we how can we manage the contracts? That are coming through um how can i get ahead of issues how do what can i see where there's going to be a problem say we've got um uh, a new commercial partnership how am i already having conversation with this with the with the commercial team to make sure that, that that you know that we can get ahead of anything that's going to come up sure yes absolutely but i mean contract transactional work is one particular function right so so you have metrics how many contracts are you reviewing you know, per year and what type of agreements are there? Are they all licensing agreements or sponsorship agreements or NDAs or, you know, whatever. I mean, you can run through that litany and then you start to look at how, how can we improve our efficiency as a unit in terms of dealing with these types of agreements, right? Are there certain things that we can bake in? Are there, are there 
document management solutions that can help expedite that process. So if we're going through you know, 500 contracts a year and you've got, let's say, a staff of one or two to go through that, you know, how, how can you become more efficient? Because that's just one particular role for us. I mean, we oversee the agent program. We're involved in anti-doping. So, so let's go through that then. This is, is go through this then, right? So I just think it's interesting. Not many people have an insight into this, right? So on the one hand, you're going, well, I've got huge volumes of, of, as you say, transactional work coming through. But then you've got, right. then you've got the regulatory side. And then you've got, you know, from on your side, and then you've got the board in terms of correct and that's a bit different in terms of maybe some other sports and then you've got your involvement with world athletics as a governing body correct federation how do you approach each of those given that you know each one of those will have uh, and sport is terrible for this (laughs) um you know you're over going to be over committed in a bunch of different areas so you're constantly spinning plates as they say right or trying to keep up in the air so how do you allocate time to ensure that you're across all those areas yeah, I mean, it's a great question and it's a, a challenge that that a lot of us face, I think, both in-house and private practice in terms of all the various demands. I mean, for me, it's something where I've got multiple folders, um, whether it be, you know, virtual on the computer or physical on the desk or whatever that are represent areas that you're overseeing. And I try at the beginning of every year to map out like what would be, how have we moved the needle or advanced and and improved things in each particular area and what are some objectives that we're going to have, you know, for doing that. So do we improve our our newsletters or increase communications as we're communicating to our athlete representatives or um, are there other benefits like we'll run surveys every couple of years to check in with them and say like hey are, are your needs being met is the continuing education that you're getting from the federation is that good are there issues that you're encountering where the federation can help out on i mean being involved and having those types of interactions with them which again i mean kind of subtext to, to some of the things that you're talking about between in-house and private practice. When you, you're in-house, you have the opportunity to have those discussions with folks a, a, at a much more intimate level where you can understand and be sensitized to it. And so you're constantly looking for ways to improve, improve, improve. And uh, to me, it's like there's Every time I think that I'm good, I'll attend one of your conferences and I'll find out, holy cow, we're way behind the curve here. And so, again, like I will look and understand and seek to to uh, learn how how others have attacked that problem and then take little parts to tweak and, and improve. And so given, you know, as a governing body, you have to deal with litigation or at least alternative dispute resolution on a regular basis. And sometimes these things can take a disproportionate amount of time up you know and, and unexpectedly uh so right you could be in the middle of trying to do you so for what you're saying sounds lovely in terms of you know and this is you're like, like i know this, this is from my perspective and any of my colleagues listening will be laughing their heads off but the you know i'm like right we're going to do this we're going to do our, our quarterly our yearly goals we are we're going to go for our key objectives these are the measurable outcomes that we go through it right then something happens <laughs> and it only takes a day or two to just throw you off. Um, how do you, what, do you have a sort of now a, a an approach to deal with that? Because obviously for a certain degree, some of those issues you can use outside counsel 
Uh, and maybe that is the, the 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 strategy. But how do you say, for example, an unexpected piece of uh, a dispute, let's say, more broadly, comes up? Um, what do you do? Well, it's usually more than a day or two when those big <laughs> <laughs> unexpected disputes comes up. Yeah, they they do tend to derail things quite a bit. Um, we do have, again, as I mentioned before, at the lower level of our pyramid there, when we we sanction thousands of events throughout the country. Um, unfortunately, there will be incidents where people get injured at those events and that those lead to litigation. Then we also have litigation within the Federation, whether it be on governance issues or um, things of that matter. And, and again, those things are, are difficult. Um, they're difficult from a budget planning perspective because it's like, you know, all of a sudden something unexpected hits you and, and now you've got legal fees associated with it. But um, to your question, I mean, at that point, again, we're back to relationships. We're back to trying to figure out, you know, which outside counsel um, has excellent experience and the right approach to trying to tackle these problems. And, that, and um, how do you deal with, um, yeah, I know you've answered this question before at the annual conference on the in-house counsel panel, but how do you look to instruct external counsel? What's your kind of, what is it you're looking for and how do you go about selecting external counsel? Um, well, I mean, there's different approaches depending on the types of issues, but I would say in general, you're trying to see if they have a clear understanding of the issues and what the a clear understanding of what the organizational objectives are, right? Because this is where the the um, inside lawyer and the private practice lawyer start to get a little divergent, right? Because the private practice lawyer is trying to generate revenue for their firm, right? And as the in-house lawyer, you're trying to minimize your expenditure on this legal issue. And so you're trying to figure out the, the firm or the person that, that understands the issue and the needs and can come up with the best approach in the most cost-effective manner, right? And so there are analytics and stuff involved with that, depending on how you're going to approach things. That was something that we worked on for the publicly traded company was, you know, looking at the history of the types of claims and understanding how much uh, litigation costs at different steps along the way, um, trying to do the analysis between when is the right time to settle and, versus... And I'm sorry, yeah. in the States, is that, and forgive me if this is a sort of naive question, but um, I'm presuming that's state by state depending on what the what the actual issue is but that could be a state-by-state state analysis rather than depending if it's a a federal issue would that be right in terms of the cost yeah i mean it's also i would say probably just case specific in terms of what we're dealing with right i mean um <clears throat> you know there are certain claims that depending on the fact pattern you know you definitely don't want you know if you've got um a case where you've got a manager, let's say, who was involved in inappropriate conduct with an employee, uh, that's not something that you want to have in front of a jury. So you're trying to figure out, okay, what's what's the best way to resolve this? And, and you want to be cognizant. You don't want to set precedents where it's like anybody can go file a claim or whatever and settlement dollars are going to come out because there are, as you know, 
corporations that do that and have the reputation for settling, and so they invite litigation. So you want to walk that line of being firm and defending corporate interests, yet at the same time making um, calculated and educated decisions on what's in the best interest of the organization. And then, so thanks for, I think that's such a great analysis and people can probably tell why you know, I like to think when listening to like why I come to Norm for for advice on on different things in terms of his uh, strategic analysis. But um, one of the things that, that that you know we've talked about again, you spoke at our conference about this, but something I know that, that you're particularly passionate about and something that we, we both share. Uh, and I'm glad to see that there's a change in a shift, uh, particularly on the international level in terms of the focus, particularly from FIFA on this, is safe sport. Um, that's an area that, that you you particularly um, been involved in. How how do you think things are progressing in the US re- with relation to that, and what do you think some of the challenges are, uh, both at a domestic and international level? Um, yeah, I mean, I think this this is an area that has evolved a lot in in a short amount of time here, which has been good. Um, unfortunately, it takes sometimes some of these catastrophic type situations to help make sure that everybody is awake enough on that. I mean, this is a this is a complicated issue on so many layer on so many levels as as you know. Um, <clears throat> it's easy for organizations to say, well, you know, they don't condone this type of behavior and and they have a background screen policy to to protect itself from it, but you know, a background screen policy alone is not enough as as you know from multiple panels that that um that you have created and addressed on this issue i mean it's a tool but it's not the tool and so um creating the right um corporate culture and putting procedures in place to to ensure that those opportunities don't arise and to make sure that that athletes and participants and members know that there's a process for reporting and what is and and understand clearly what is and what is not acceptable behavior. I mean, those are all you know important elements of it. It's an area that um, is difficult for for people to have conversations on. It's great that that it, it has taken on. Um, incredible importance here and I th- feel like we're we're definitely growing and moving in the right direction in terms of of ways to to improve that and do you and do you think on an international level um that is starting to get more traction in terms of uh being addressed I definitely know that say for example last week um was it last week I'm losing track of time but uh, FIFA I have the pleasure of participating in this conference on the FIFA law review they did a whole big piece on the Afghanistan uh, women's football team, uh, the abuse that took place by by a senior official, by the president, no less, of the association and other members of the staff. And I thought that was very good that finally that that someone's actually addressing it here on the platform. They could have had cherry picked some other more easier topics to deal with. Um, and then FIFA Pro have come out as well, was, who were obviously involved in that, and, and said like this is something you know that we really need to get ahead of, like in terms of world sport. Are you seeing from an athletic standpoint? Uh, or I guess a more broadly, an Olympic standpoint, is it now starting to get something that's now starting to be more looked at at an international level? I do. I mean, I 
I've been fortunate. I've, I was selected to serve on the World Athletics, which is the International Federation for the Sport of Athletics, right, the governing body for that. I'm on their governance commission. It's an area that has been touched on and, and ways that the AIU may be looking into. Um, That's the Athletics uh, Integrity Unit for those. Right. Um, <clears throat> getting involved and, and taking a, a more prominent role in those types of issues. But... Um, and I agree with you that 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 it's it, it's happening internationally. It becomes complicated as we've discussed before, right? The the safe sport or safeguarding umbrella. It's really easy on the sexual abuse or molestation, like those types of of issues, right? But it's more than that. It's it's emotional abuse. It could be physical abuse. I mean, there's a lot yeah, of not, different sorry, types. Sorry. Of, when you well, sorry, well, 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 let me just. I know what you mean, but it's going to clarify what you what you said. You don't mean that it's easy in the sense of it's easy to necessarily. Um, they're difficult issues to deal with. But what you mean is it's easier to identify if that's that has happened. Is that right? Is that retaining or easier to sanction or? Well, well, those are those are behaviors that are are pretty clear cut that they are that are inappropriate conduct, right? But when you're talking about like um, the relationship between a coach and an athlete, and and the way that a coach uh, either yells at or attempts to motivate an athlete, and what whether that crosses the line of emotional abuse or um, you know that's where it starts to get a little bit murkier from a, a, an enforcement perspective, right? And so you, you do your best to kind of set some parameters and stuff um, around that. But to your initial question, it's very complicated because at, at least at the international level, from, from conversations that I've had with, with a lot of different folks on this issue, I mean, when you're dealing with countries that may have you know, cultures that allow or enable certain type of conduct. And you're going to say that that conduct is not appropriate in this sport setting. Um, that's where it starts to get um, murkier when you're trying to address it um, across um, across international um, waters. Yeah, so. and that's definitely something that UNICEF have brought, brought up in the past. In terms of you know the, the treatment of minors, the treat you know the the um, you know because in certain countries around the world you can marry someone at age thirteen or something like that, right? And so that that raises significant issues. Okay, um, I'm glad to hear that it's becoming more like it's my hope and, and belief that it should do as, if, as 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 people know from our events and other things. I think it should be the number one thing that that world sports should be focused on: protect your asset, which is your, you know, your participants. Uh, you know, with, who, no matter where they are, whether they're coaches or, or the athletes themselves, or um, you know, should be able to participate in a safe sport. And then speaking on on sort of more broadly then so so you're dealing with and, and i think that was a great overview right so you've got the commercial stuff that you're dealing with so you're dealing with broadcast rights you're dealing with sponsorship agreements you're dealing with all of that sort of stuff um uh um your supplier agreements uh then you've got all the employment no doubt issues of in terms of an organization you've got your board that you liaise with and and usa track and field has got uh, um i'm not sure it's unusual but do you, do you just wanted to say what the um the, the structure is in terms of the the board and the executive and how that works. 
Sure. Um, the the board of directors is comprised of um, a lot of constituents, right? So it's it's um, athletes, which are now up to a third of the board, right? Um, you have um, constituent leaders, whether they be um, the uh, someone from the officials committee or masters track and field or high performance, you know, so you've got your, your kind of constituent leaders, you have your independents, um, you have your athletes. Um, our board has now uh, been increased. We're going to be a 21-member board here, or we are a 21-member board of directors. That's a um, big board. <laughs> that is a big board, correct. Um, it was up from 15, but as as the changes went from – uh, to bring the athlete total up to a third, and we wanted to also increase the independence, which was important from a USOPC perspective, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Um, it was important that you have a strong independent presence in there as well to to help guide the sport, which I think is 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 valuable. And do you have council as well, or do you just have the board structure that makes up the the essentially decision making and and approval process? Well, the yeah, the board of directors, their job is to, you know, set the strategic vision for the organization and then to oversee the chief executive um, whose job it is to to run the commercial aspects of the business. So, so what I'm saying is, though, on, say, say, for example, in the Olympic movement that people know that typically you may have. Um, you know, an executive, you may, yeah, you may have your board, but you also may have your council, you know, so you have this relationship in your, in USA track and field, you have your constituents, which would be the, the council members from an international perspective are the board. So it's a much more simplified structure as you'd expect in something like the Premier League or, um, yeah, correct. And so that means then, so what, one of the things that happens then with a board like that with so many stakeholders, <laughs> surely, <laughs> Sure, that may, that can be a bit difficult in terms of um, you know prioritization when you've got so many different. It's great that there's so many different stakeholders, and I like the fact that you know you're hearing about this independence. At the same time, um, I would imagine then that can also uh, you know cause greater workload in terms of where you should you know people are asking for research or what's the perspective on this. We know we've got a board meeting. That's a you know how, how do you, <laughs> I dread to think how you have to do with that. I guess work harder. <laughs> Yeah, that that is the that is the challenge, and that that's part of it too. Is you 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 want you know these these are positions that that change out every four years. Um, different constituents come in with it, it takes some time for them to be onboarded and um, get a better understanding of what are the issues that are facing the organization. Um, how has the organization tried to attack it? What is the strategic plan that the organization is trying to execute on? And then how do they fulfill their fiduciary duties in that role as the constituent leader um, for or the rep constituent representative for this particular group and making sure that they understand where they fit in so that uh, once that happens, then the board conversations become much more robust and focused on the types of issues that are impacting the organization as opposed to, you know, some issue that has come about within their particular constituency that is problematic. And then, you know, those kind of conversations 
derail the organization from addressing the things that they want to continue to move and grow. And and that's that's quite candidly, I mean, it's been the challenge of of Olympic sports in general. It's not unique to our no. sport. I mean, and I think that's the same. But you could argue just the same as you were saying earlier about you know your previous role in the corporate world. That that's just could be the same with stakeholders, with shareholders, with you know. Yeah, you, know, you see the same type of issues come up depending on the influence that one person's got. It can you know, move the whole focus of a board. Um, and then the other thing that you deal with and that we talk about a lot is managing the sort of the work-life balance, if there is one, right? Now, you've got five kids, um, right, which is like someone with two. And I said I was completely unaware. I just so totally didn't realize how much of an incompetent human being I was until I had kids and I think I was, it turns out I was, I was barely looking after myself um uh anyway as it was um someone with five kids um a very busy job that requires you to travel what's your kind of approach in terms of you know dealing with all of that because <laughs> that's a you know there's a lot of different competing pressures and sometimes they don't marry very nicely together yeah, I jokingly say, and this is the time of year where we're doing this right now in the middle of the NCAA college tournament where the motto is survive in advance, right? So <laughs> that has been the, the joke that I do. You just try to survive each day in advance. But, um, you know, for me, a lot of it is is number one, prioritization, right? And making sure that you're you're staying true to your priorities in life right? And family ranks right up there. So making sure that you're committed to your family and finding the time to, to make sure that you're addressing everybody's needs, your, your spouse's needs, your children's needs, you know, um, your parents' needs. I mean, like your siblings, I mean, like it, it branches out. Number two, a lot of it is trying to compartmentalize, um, you want to get focused on one particular task, you want to get that done, you want to allocate that. I mean, having good organization skills, I think, plays into that. So um, so, how, so how do you do that, though? Like, as in, again, I said this because, you know, ages ago we did a podcast with Daniel Gee and we, we ended up talking about various health issues and work-life balance and people seem to really enjoy it. So let's get into it, right? Because I think a lot of people struggle with this, uh, particularly at this moment in time, which is, being able to compensate, I've definitely struggled with it over this period. And, you know, going to do the motorsport conference the last few days has really shone a light on that. The fact that I had to travel in the car meant, highlighted to me how how little I had been compartmentalizing, particularly over the last few weeks. I've been trying to, like, trying to do more and actually, I think, been doing less. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I don't know that I'm, like, you know, the person to speak on that because I feel like, like I have prioritized myself last in that sense and it was taking a toll on me physically, but I try to be very efficient throughout the day. And I, I know you and I have had this conversation before where it's like even the ride to and from the office each day, you know, if I can connect with my spouse for, you know, a 15 minute uninterrupted call or, um, me. <laughs> a kid, or, a kid, right? Or anybody? I mean, like a kid to find out if they're having homework issues or uh, issues with people at school or whatever. I mean, like that's time that 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 can be used. And I try to prioritize even in terms of like who's having um, issues, which in in a sense I feel is probably not fair because if there's one child who is struggling and 
um, monopolizing, you know, your time or whatever is not fair to the others that are doing well that would love to just, you know, visit. And in that sense, I don't know that I'm succeeding in that regard, but, you know, I definitely try when the weekends roll around, there's on Saturday and I'm, I'm disconnected from my devices, focused all in on family, trying to connect. Um, a lot of them play sports and I try not to miss any of their games and, and travel with them and, and spend time with them in that regard. And, and again, it's, I'm just trying to check in because I try to reinforce what the priorities are. Like they know that, that I love them and I'm going to support them. And if there's an issue that they have that they, you know, need to come talk to me. And I, I usually tell them, look, there's a lot of times where, where I'm distracted. And if you see that I'm distracted, you need to catch my attention. You need to say, Hey, I I'm having this issue. I need more of your time. I need you to do that. And it may take, I'm a, I'm a dense individual. (laughs) You may have to hit me. Me too. (laughs) That's why we're friends, right? Correct. You may have to hit me over the head a couple of times with it until it clicks in. But And so how do you like, do you have any strategies for trying to like, um, you know, de-stress from work, given that that, like home life can be a bit crazy with five kids at different stages of their lives running around and everything. And then, you know, with COVID, obviously we've been at home more. And then, uh, you know, there's, you know, if if anything, the pressure for everyone around the world has been, has generally been intensified for us all. Um, And definitely like, you know, with, with hopefully with COVID restrictions relaxing in various parts of the world, at this moment in time, things there's a glimmer of hope for people with the vaccine. But there are a lot of people I know who, some of the people I know are just like some of the most, prior to this, they even self-admit that they thought they were much more robust than they than, they, than, than, than they've turned out to be during this period, myself included. I thought I was much more capable <laughs> of uh, managing my energy, managing my focus and everything else. What have you been doing to sort of, you know, de-stress, um, because you know, if you take, for example, you say prioritize and uh, and execute, essentially, is a is a is a is um something to that you try to focus on as a way of a strategy of dealing with it. But that's that can even be affected though. If you're under so many competing pressures, I definitely yeah. Perspective perspective is important too because COVID has been hard. I mean, I think it's impacted everybody in a lot of different ways, and so I want to make sure that I that I say that out loud um, because the next aspect of it, you know, from a perspective is like in some ways it's been positive because it's, it's put a cease to travel for a little while. It's brought you into the home, right? So some of the things that I was missing when I would get up and leave for work or or travel now I'm actually here. So, um, parts during the day, catching up, like some of those conversations in passing that were just not endemic to being in 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 the professional setting are, are happening. And again, like that's it adds stress because it feels like your your home is now on top of your work and that makes it harder to juggle. But it's also there's a benefit and that is my point is like the, to me, like one of the enlightening points was like the, the perspective element and your perspective is literally a thought away. So if, 
if your thought becomes, well, actually COVID is good because it's enabled me more time to spend at home and how am I going to maximize this time and how am I going to enrich some of these relationships and take advantage of these opportunities that I have with my family and stuff like that, that's a positive. Yes, it does impact your work and people running in and, and I'm sure you deal with this too, where you're in the middle of a podcast, let's say, and a kid runs in. And, <laughs> I've had it twice, you know, and, <laughs> twice during this one. <laughs> you haven't noticed. But right. <laughs> uh, it happens like during Zoom calls and stuff like that. And so you just kind of like adjust or whatever. It's different, but you know, there are, there are positive elements to it. And so I try to like focus on those positive elements to it. And, and I definitely don't want to come out of this pandemic and not have, have learned about some things about myself and, and exploited and what do you or think, what, the opportunity. And, yeah. and what do you think you have learned like over this? Like, like for me, I don't know what I'm trying to think. What have I learned? I've definitely learned that, that there's uh, to, to, to value more some of the uh, sort of personal interactions I think a lot of people have. I've also, I think it's highlighted to me that some of the real negative elements of, of digital technology, um, it's just reinforced I that. I totally like, agree. Like, I totally agree. There's something about, you know, um, hugging somebody that you haven't seen in in a while and shaking hands and getting together for lunch. And it, you can't replicate that on a Zoom call. I've tried. I mean, there are certain friends where it's like we can't see each other. So we try to do these Zoom lunches. But it's still like whenever something else gets in the way, it's like, hey, I got to get back as opposed to being in a restaurant and not having anything interfere with that conversation and that connection. And also there's something, as I say, weird, like say, like I said yesterday was the first time, the last two days was the first time I've been out of my home in terms of other than going for walks in the park and going to the shops to get some food. I hadn't worked from anywhere for over a year. And it was really weird just being around other people in that work capacity as such, even though it wasn't, you know, my place of work as say, uh, I felt like an energy is almost like, you know, you see sometimes like a, you put certain chemicals next to each other and they start to, uh, or, um, yeah, certain microorganisms and they start to get like really active. It was kind of like, yeah, that. Yeah, I felt yeah. like all of a sudden I had this extra gear in terms of energy, just being around other people. I thought it was fascinating. I think the other thing is that I've learned, I'm not sure if you have, is just how much there's way too much information out there in the world now that's not quality checked or assured. And so everyone in this, we'll talk about, talk about with someone yesterday, I won't mention their name, but like a, a, a lawyer somewhere. And um, we were talking about this, that everyone fires off text messages, WhatsApps, da, 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 rather than pick up the phone. Or, you know, because it's like, I'll get it off my plate. I'll tell you that I've thought of something. I'll tell you that I've done this rather than actually think, hold on, will this add value to anyone in terms of, you know, will it communicate? And I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. You, you know, Correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean, again, it goes back to people and connectivity and um, that that sense of connection, I think. And, and to me, it's like it's an important element of it. I mean, I feel like, you know, you, you touched on a lot of those issues in terms of the pros and the cons of technology and stuff like that. And I feel like, you know, tying it all back to business, I mean, I feel like we're we're learning that um we may need to rethink the traditional sports model, right? Like a lot of sports properties are sitting here going like, Hey, you know, is the ticket 
revenue that we were relying on is it do we need to start diversifying yes like how do we diversify this model now how do we better engage with our sport consumer our fan like what are different ways that we can monetize that relationship how can we exploit some technology what are like to me it's like these are all of the things that are happening which i think is is ultimately going to improve so again it's perspective but we're we're definitely struggling in the states with with um a lot of sports that are the in colleges at least that are non-revenue generating that took a hit when when march madness when that tournament was was canceled last year and it impacted university and athletic departments and you know things like that continue to have a ripple effect on the sport and so uh, it's important we've got to figure out better ways where we can um, coordinate with other properties that are putting on these events and figure out how we can um, get gain some economies of scale when it comes to uh, do you think that's one venues, of, that's one things of the like things that. I really do hope that and I've seen it fluctuate throughout the the course of the last year or so is that some and you know we're pro collaboration <laughs> as just generally as a way forward and I think that some people have really embraced that and uh and others have have uh, uh let's say um maybe did for a period now they've like you know got back into the swing of things again and they're just focusing on what they're own doing i really do hope one of the things that we sort of pull out from this is that collaboration is a is a much better for the sports sector in particular a much better uh, methodology in terms of making it sustainable in the in the in the long term um final final thoughts then norm like in terms of like you know what you're looking at in terms of you know <laughs> what's the things that you're sort of looking to the future obviously you got are you i guess i think i know what your answer is going to be you can't look more ahead than the olympic games right so i'm gonna i was going to ask you outside of the i guess outside of the olympic games obviously hopefully that all goes ahead and it's run safely um and the paralympic games um what are the other things that you're sort of paying attention to um or that you're taking note of well, I will say this. I mean, the Olympic Games right now are like the beginning of the runway. I think we have a unique we have a unique opportunity um, in the United States for the sport of athletics. Right? It's going to start with the Olympic Games, and then the following summer is the first ever World Championships um, that are going to be hosted on U.S. soil in athletics. Right? So um, that will happen in Eugene in in twenty two, and then the Olympic Games come back to the States in 28. So there is a, a we feel like there is a, a massive um, opportunity to start creating um, better um, events and mechanisms to, to help grow the sport. And so we're going to continue to try to utilize those platforms to do that and garner interest and in things like that um, for it. Um, try to figure out ways that we can collaborate with other properties again in that regard. Um, so those are, at least from a, a, a athletics perspective, those are definite priorities. And they, they mirror what we have in our strategic plans too. So uh, I'm glad you thought about it, Norm. <laughs> I would expect no less. So the, um, so that, so that's a really 
you're interesting. So we, you, you know, essentially you're going right. Check we're in this position at the moment. It's difficult, but the the as you're saying that you would refer as the the runway is looking. You know, presuming we get this all under control, is looking quite promising for the sport of athletics. And no doubt, in the backdrop to all of this, we won't go into. Uh, you've got the name, image, and likeness stuff, which could change the whole landscape in America as well. Um, yeah, which is like a big deal. Um, and then there's a, I love the way you drop these like four hour conversation <laughs> topics in like four seconds, you know, like, yeah, there's, that's, that's a whole broad issue in and of itself. I, right. I, I, so, well, I think people milk it. I just, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're milking it. Right. They, we, we can deal with it in a few minutes. Um, no, but it, they are very uh, uh, technical and, and difficult issues. I'm not trying to <laughs> got to be careful. Upset half our editorial board, as most of the people in America. No, they are, <laughs> but they are, um, and they are technical, issue, technical issues. Norm, but I mean, like again, to your point though, World Athletics is undergoing like governance reform. They're trying to become a governance leader, which I think is great. I think they're trying to set. They're trying to set the 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 standard for what international federations should be from a governance perspective, which I think is is really important. And I feel like tremendously fortunate to be able to be on that ride, right? Especially coming off of issues with IOC, with FIFA, with you know, the prior version of World Athletics, the IAAF. I mean, like these are issues that have been plaguing and impact. And ultimately it's the athletes that suffer. And so, you know, when you're able to to try to to work to do things, I mean like as we continue, I guess, as a sport evolving, I mean, these are things that that help improve and um, ultimately benefit athletes and fans, which is which is important. It's why we do what we do. And I, I agree with you. You know, I wrote a piece about when the when the uh, World Athletics changed their governance structure. I wrote a piece about it because so I was geeking out. On, I was excited about how it could work in practice if they, uh, you know, use the v the vetting processes properly and and had that separation of powers. I thought it was really promising, and we've seen international ice hockey with um, uh, Ashley and, and what they've done there again in seven players. It's really promising that we're starting to see that move um, in terms of towards better governance. And simultaneously, then you've got this debate, and you've got you know the likes of John Taylor, you know, who's who, who says described it as like. Yeah, the kind of similar objectives, but they're coming across purposes or across. There's a bit of a dialogue that needs to happen there with people like the World Players and Brendan Schwab and the Sports Center for Sport and Human Rights. But the the good thing is there seems to be, it seems to be like there's a really promising opportunity coming up at the moment uh, to address a lot of these issues, which I would have said five years ago weren't going to be addressed <laughs> you know and it seems like there is an opportunity in the window for people who really do are thinking strategically for the long term that they can get their governance in order right and they can address some of these issues and align um you know their activities with the interests of the individuals and the participants in a very transparent way there's there's that's the win right that is where there's more commercial opportunity right and i feel like to tie it all in and i know you're not going to like when i do this but i just feel like you know part of what makes law and sport law and sport right is the ability for you to continue to leverage um so many brilliant minds and be able to to talk about these issues not not on the surface level not on the 6 second soundbite 
but like to, to be able to dig in. And I know there's a lot of exciting initiatives that you are working on from a law and sport perspective, which I will not share. <laughs> I will love it. It's just like, like Norman. <laughs> but I'm sure you will in due time because that is what you do. But I'm just saying like the opportunities are abound for it. I think it's, it's, it's amazing what you have done with it. And I, again, feel very fortunate to be along for the ride. And Norm, you're always too humble. And thank you for your support and your, you're, you're, you're always like, this is the thing I always tell Norm off. Cause every time he does that, he always bigs up law and sport, but he generally believed it. But, um, uh, I, I like, do, I know you do. I know. But like I said, some people might listen and think, oh, so he's doing this cause he kind of like a Sean twist. I'm so, not, no, no, I'm saying it like legitimately, like if you are listening to this thing right now, <laughs> if you presumably you have gone through and seen some of the content that has come out, I mean, you are talking about issues at, at its true core legal, um, like the meat of the issue. And, and for me, like, I love it because I, I like it from, it, it touches on so many different areas on an athlete representative side of the house, right? Like, I'm, holy cow, I wasn't aware that some of these things were happening globally. And, and it's easy information to pick up. And sometimes, you know, you, you, you can't grab it all at once because you're, there's a lot to these articles and stuff like that. And so, um, there's a lot to it and I would encourage anybody listening. I mean, reach out to me if you've got any questions about it. I mean, um, this has been, uh, I think a, a true labor of love on your end. And I feel like there's not a lot, you know, competing with you in this sector. And I, I just feel like for anybody in the industry, it's, it's definitely an important tool. Thanks Norm. I, I always say to people, we're not competing with anyone because I don't think anyone's trying to do what we're doing in the sense of <laughs> <laughs> like uh don't think anyone's crazy enough um no but generally like you know our motivation is to try is to encourage collaboration and to encourage dialogue and if it wasn't for good people like yourself the other members of the advisor board the editorial board all the people have written for us and attend their events right we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing and no doubt no one will be listening to the podcast if we didn't do that take the approach <laughs> that we took so um no norm as i said you're a good friend um, uh, you know, you've been a great member of the advisory board. Um, you're one of the, the people that I think have got a really good strategic overview of the space. And so it's delighted to finally get you on the podcast. I know you're somebody who doesn't really crave profile. And so, uh, yeah, I'm glad to finally make it happen because <laughs> I've like, literally <laughs> been six years in the making and, you know, uh, love to all the family and, um, yeah, thanks for making the time. I know how busy you are. So I really appreciate it. No problem. I appreciate the opportunity, Sean. Thank <laughs> you so much.